0: Well, good morning. Well, it's great to see you guys here this morning. Uh, My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors uh, here uh, at Salem. Hey, how many of you guys uh, have heard, it's kind of a strange introduction, but how many of you guys have heard of a a group on YouTube uh, called Dude Perfect? Okay, a few of you, a little less than than maybe first service. Okay, so if you don't know, Dude Perfect is... um, it's a, a group of five guys who met uh, in college uh, down in Texas, I believe, somewhere down in Texas, and uh, they were in the same you know, um, like Bible study or something like that together, and so they started doing life, and you know, they enjoyed each other, and so they thought, let's move in together. So uh, there were five, I think four of them chose to move in together. One is a clean freak. He's like, no way, I'm out. Um, I know you guys. And so, um, so there's these four guys, but five guys together. And, uh, you know, in the middle of this kind of college environment, you know, they start doing this goofy thing and they start doing trick shots with basketballs and footballs and, you know, and things like that. And so they they filmed it, you know, filmed some and then and then posted online. It was kind of like the pre kind of viral days before the Internet was really doing that. And so, um, like all of a sudden, it kind of starts gaining momentum. And so I don't know how much time goes by, but they get a phone call uh, or somebody from the group gets a phone call from Good Morning America. And they're like, hey, we'd love to put your video on our show. Okay, duh. Yeah, that sounds great. Who's gonna say no to that? You know, and so it goes on and it starts to build. And it goes and goes and goes, and you know, they're kind of in this in-between tension, you know, it's not enough to kind of make money, and and so you know, they're working nine to five, and eventually they get to this point. Where they say, you know, we're all in, and so the wives are like, "Yep, go for it, let's do it." And so, um, so these five guys they commit to it, and and it just starts to grow, and boom, and it turns into this multi-million-dollar like like franchise with branding and videos, and and it's incredible, guys. Let me just tell you, it's wholesome, it's family-friendly, and it is fun stuff. And so I, we watch it as like at home, like with Eden, like over like little lunch times or whatnot, um, and uh, it's great. It's so good. So. Uh, Minus the fact, and just hear this very clearly, okay, minus the fact that God has called me to be a senior pastor, I'm like, dream job. Make tons of money, throw in a football at a basketball hoop. Incredible. This is amazing. Like, I want it. And so you look at this and you go, man, like this, this lifestyle, you go, man, like on the front, you go, these guys have got the dream. Like, like life is so good for these guys. But that's on the outside. Just yesterday, or two days ago, I watched a video, um, another YouTube video, of a different group. It's called I Am Second. And it's a group that uh, takes People who are kind of in the spotlight or celebrities who are Christians, and they give them the opportunity in front of a camera to be vulnerable and authentic with their story and their faith. And, and so here they grab one of the guys from Dude Perfect and his wife, and they start to talk, and they, and they unpack the growing nature of Dude Perfect while at the same time their marriage was crumbling. You go, I had no idea. Because on the forefront, like from the outside, the videos we watch, like, man, it's so much fun. That's so great. They must have great families. They must have great relationships. And she's like, I got to a point where I was like, I can't do it anymore. And it was just broken. You know, and so like like why share that story? Because I think about like us in church and I like we have such a great community, and I love seeing people laughing and encouraging and cheering each other on. Like, it's like, That's one of the greatest things to see. You can't buy that in community. That's like the work of God in us. But let me just say, we would be naive if we didn't see through that and in some way, shape, or form, in some deep dark area behind every smile, behind every joy there is a dark, broken, chaotic emptiness, that each of us is unique to our story. And we started a long time ago uh, in the book of Ruth. And Ruth is really this story that she starts with this fullness, and all of a sudden, Naomi has emptiness. And so it's really this story about how God ultimately wants to bring redemption to her story, Right, And it's this beautiful story about how God is going to show up in the midst of it. And so as we're nearing to the end, like we have this week, and we're going to look at just a kind of couple of quick verses next week, but that's really just a platform as we jump into the triumphal entry with Palm Sunday and Holy Week and everything else. Um, but today, we want to finish, and I want to look at three things in our story. Uh, the fulfillment, kind of from beginning to end. Um, I want to look at the fullness that it actually provides. And then I want to talk about the future. Okay. Um, And this is really good stuff, okay? So here we are in in chapter 4, verse 13 uh, of Ruth. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now, when you read this, this is so easy to read, right? And it's so easy for us just to gloss over. And, um, And here's the deal. Like, they left out a ton of information in this sentence, because this last chapter ended with kind of like Boaz, like buying back this land with the opportunity to marry Ruth. And all of a sudden we go from wedding to baby in one sentence. And so there's a ton of stuff left out in this. And you're like, like, what was their wedding like? Like, as far as marriages go, like that's significant. Like, I remember when Nikki and I got married. And, uh, and so I was like, hey, we should do it at a golf course. She's like, <laughs> yeah, Okay. And then we go, and then we find a golf course, and it's like, they've never done one before, so like, hey, we'll do it for free. We're like, Nikki's like, that helps. Let's do it there. And so I was like, great. They're like, here's the, here's the, here's the you know, the catch is that you need to order food off of our menu. And we're like, okay, let's show us the menu. Let's see what you got. And, and lo and behold, like, we get to the end, and we're like, yeah, ribs and mac and cheese. Sounds like a great wedding. And it's like you're know, like wedding dresses terrible idea suits Ter- but it's our wedding who cares let's go all out let's have fun and it was great and we had ribs and mac and cheese and an ice cream line and it was amazing and you- but none of that there's nothing about the wedding in here There's there's so many details that are skipped over because I think the author is getting us really quickly to his point, and it's this, is that there's a baby that's entering into the story. And this baby is super important because this is a story about Ruth, isn't it, right? The the, the title of the book is Ruth, and yet the story kind of begins and ends with this woman named Naomi, Right? Because it's Naomi in her brokenness and in her emptiness, and God is going to use Ruth to bring redemption to Naomi's story. You see, it's a story of redemption outside of herself. God is going to use Ruth to bring redemption into this story. Right? And if you remember, the story kind of starts with these kind of these two problems, right? There's there's a food issue and there's a fertility issue. So in, in Israel, there's a drought, and so they're not, there's not enough food, and so the family goes to Moab. It's in Moab that their sons um, marry daughters, right? But then in time, her husband and then the two sons both pass away. And she's left not just with no food then, as this thing over here, she's now left with no grandkids. And it's this common theme that starts at the beginning that needs this fulfillment to come to the end. And so you get this, this feeling or this sense is that without kids, guys, here's, this is the big deal in their times, is that without grandkids, her family line is at risk of ending, And that's a big deal. That's a big deal, right? And so what he's doing is that, you know, he's helping us see. Because remember the story that started with desperation and bitterness. And there's this hunger, right? This is where the story starts. But by the end of the story, not only is there food, there's also a baby that God is bringing redemption into the story. And I love that the women here acknowledge it. Look at verse 14. So there's this group of women, and they're hanging out. And here's what they say Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Now, there's so much that's in this verse, but as you look at these those first two words of like this day, right? Okay, this day. He has not left you this day, right? So the author is talking about this timing piece, right? And it helps us to think because in life, how often do you and I think about today versus long ago or yesterday? And we begin this contrast, this comparison in our minds and in our hearts. We're like, okay, here's where we are today, but do you remember when? Do you remember way back in college when I didn't have to do work? That was awesome. Do you remember when, right? And we start to compare these things, right? And all of a sudden we get to this day. And so the author is bringing it full circle. Now the reality is, and we'll talk about this later, is that life is never going to look the same for Naomi. It's never going to look the same. It can't look the same because she has lost people that she deeply loves. And yet what we're finding is that God is going to bring fulfillment and God wants to bring fullness back into the story. Because I, guys, check this out. Like, like note how much, like how many times in this story has it kept coming back to the theme of redemption? You see it right in this verse, right? There's a redeemer. There's this redemption piece. And who's at the center of this redemption? Is it Boaz is it Ruth No it's it's all caps the Lord which means that's his personal name it's Yahweh right the women they say blessed be the Lord like Yahweh, like he's at the center of this story. And this is what he is doing. So in the midst of the small story of life, they're looking into the big story and going, man, this is God at work. This is the bigness and the largeness of God in his redemption story. And guess what? He has not left you with nothing. He's not left you with Nothing. Now the word in in Hebrew actually for left, is kind of a strange word, it actually means to sit down. So you'll notice that I'm sitting, it's very intentional. And in the hifil, it actually means that God causes, causes someone to sit down. And see, this is why I think this is significant, is that when you and I endure hardships, right, what's our most natural tendency is that we come down into a seating place. And we begin to mourn and grieve, and rightly so, right? This is a place where we stew and we mold and we wrestle with what we've lost. Right, And this is a place where God oftentimes sees us. And yet sometimes I think in our life, in our mind's eye, what we do is that we picture God causing this, and then he sits you down just to grieve in your mess and to grieve in your, your brokenness, and then you see God and he walks out the door never to come back. Right? You know, we're in this phase right now with Eden, um, who's four. She's our daughter. And, uh, and, you know, and so if Nikki is like, hey, Seth, I need to run to the grocery store, um, could you give me 30 minutes and you watch Eden? I'm like, absolutely. Uh, Uno Jr. is a lifesaver right now. It goes really quick for her, really slow for me, okay? So half an hour, right? And so we're playing this game or whatever, but in this game, in the midst of it, Eden will oftentimes say, she'll be like, when's mama coming home? And I'm like, oh, it's just a short trip, like 30 minutes. And she's like, mama's going to be gone forever? No, kiddo, No no, 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 she's just going to the grocery store. Like forever? No, 30 minutes. 30 minutes, right? 30 minutes and she'll be back. And yet, so for us as adults, like we we look at that and we go, we understand that. And yet when we look at God, sometimes there's this disconnect. We're like, we picture God like walking away from us in our mess and he's like, see you later. Right? Now, now, here's the reality is that, that God doesn't actually ever leave, but for you and I, it can feel that way. And it says, though, but here's, here's the positive. Is that it's got a negative in, the, in, the, in, this, in this sentence. It says he does not, he has not left you. He has not forgotten you. It's like not like God is this, this absent-minded God who like went to the grocery store and then 15 years later was like, I left Seth at home. You know, like that's not who God is. And so here's what's so neat about this story is that because it's a knot, he doesn't leave you in this place. Like there's a place and a time where we get to do this, but guess what? It's not permanent because he invites us back into the story as he is redeeming the story. And here he says, I haven't left you alone. Here's what I've left you. I've actually left you a redeemer because at the center of redemption is a redeemer. But in the text, here's what's super fascinating, is that there's this shift in characters. Because when we think about the redeemer, we tend to think about Yahweh or Boaz. Guess what? It's not Ruth. It's not Boaz. It's not even God who's the redeemer in this sentence. It's the baby. The baby is the one who is actually the Redeemer in this next phase of the story. And so this baby then is this this living, breathing example with, you know, like all of those little, those voices is this living, breathing symbol that God looked at Naomi and said, I have not forgotten you. I have not forgotten forgotten you. And yet though, this baby is actually more than that because this baby is going to have an active role in the personal redemption of Naomi's story. Look at verse 15. It says, he, he's talking about the baby here. The baby or he shall be to you a restorer of life. A restorer, like what does that mean? The the word restorer actually in Hebrew is actually the word shuv, which means to turn. So it's like God has seen this story, right, and it's unfolding, and now he's causing a turn. And then it implies that there is a return, and it's going back to a fullness, a time when there was fullness. Now, life will never look the same again, but God says, I want to bring fullness into your story, I'm going to use this baby as a way to restore your life. But not only that, he says that this baby will be a nourisher of your old age, right? That just means like, this is weird because this is the irony because this can't work, right? But it says that the baby will actually sustain and provide the necessities for Naomi. You're like, what? How's a baby going to do that? Spoiler alert, we're pointing to Jesus, It's it's like it's impossible to not see the Jesus ties in this story. And guess what? And it comes up and it finishes with this line. You know, as as these women are are validating and encouraging Naomi, they say, guess what? We know that you could have had seven sons, but you had it in Ruth. Why? Because she loves you. She loves you so much, Naomi. Don't you see how much Ruth has loved you Through this process. So, if we go back to this idea, like, like let's note how much this in this entire story from beginning to end, like how often we see this theme of redemption keep coming back. Because redemption is this idea of buying back, right? And so it's like God looks into the chaos and the brokenness of the world. He says, I'm not okay with this. So I, I integrate myself, I pull myself in the story, and I'm buying back people and circumstances and stories for his big Picture story, right? And so here's the deal. As you think through this, is the story of Ruth, this is kind of as it goes, right? Let's imagine that this is Naomi at the beginning of the story, right? She leaves and goes to Moab. And as she does, her sons then get married. And so she feels more and more full. But then in a moment, she loses her husband. And then in another moment, after a while, she loses her sons. And this is how she feels. This is how she describes herself. She went away full, and she came back empty, right? That's her her perspective. And so when we think about the story of Ruth and how God uses Ruth in Naomi's life, it's like time and time again, maybe it's a short time here, A short time there and over time, God is doing is that he's bringing fullness back into Naomi's life, right? And that's where we get to this baby. Like all of a sudden, we get to this point and it's in fact so full that she can actually overflow. And you're like, is that even possible? Like I I started empty. Is this even a feasible thing? And guys, here's what I want you to to realize is is that life Is never gonna look the same as it did before because the water in this cup is different than the water that it was before. But God's desire for you is that you would still be full, that He would be the redeemer of your story. Do I know how He's gonna do that? No clue. Do you know how He's gonna do that? No clue. But this is his desire, and we don't know the amount of time it's going to take, but over time, his desire and his actions are to fill us back up, to bring us back to fullness in Jesus. And that's really what he describes kind of even in this story. Look at verse 16. This is what happens with the baby. Right? There's not only just fulfillment with the baby, there's also fullness. Look at verse 16. It says, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Now, I want you to think for a second because you could read this and you could gloss over this super fast. I want you to put yourself in in Naomi's shoes because at the beginning of the story, right, there was emptiness. Look, look at look how she describes herself in 121, right? She says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Therefore, why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant when the Lord has testified against me? That's her perspective. That's how she sees this. God has testified against me and brought calamity upon me. This was, this was her attitude. This was her thing, right? But then all of a sudden, in a moment, in this one sentence, like baby is born, wedding to baby, and now as the baby enters into the world, they're like, hey, do you, do you want to hold him? Give me the baby. You now it's like, like she pulls it in, and she sets him on her lap and begin to think about the tears of joy that are probably coming down her face. Right? It's just this tears of happiness, like what she thought. And and it's like she wraps them in this hug. I don't know what new baby smell like was back then, but I'm guessing there's something, right? And so you got new baby smell, and you got those little nose wrinkles when they do that as a baby. Or those teeny tiny little fingers that are slowly moving with eyes shut, and those cute little teeny tiny toes. Like, can you imagine, like her sensation in this moment, what her what her attitude is, and how the life that she once had is now beginning to shift? Some of you guys might be new, um, and you you might know or may not know that my wife and I, you know, can understand this story very well. For many years, we struggled with infertility, and so it was really hard for us as we were wrestling through this. And I remember this one moment going. Okay, God, this seems like an impossibility. So, what are you going to do? And He led us, thankfully, to adoption. And this was Eden on day three when we got her. Like we went in to go get go get her. We had to, We were living in Charlotte at the time. We had to drive up to Raleigh. And like I'm used to like going to Taco Bell and buying a burrito, but you go here and they're like, "Here's a baby." And you're like, is this how this works? Run before they change their mind, you know? You know, like, it's like, there's it like, it this moment, they're like, do you want to hold her? And they're like, give me the baby. <laughs> you know, like, no, like, you pull her in, and all of a sudden, you went from no baby to baby. And it's a very different story, but let me just tell you, like, gosh, like, this was taken, I think, when we stopped. Actually, it was probably Nikki taking a picture on the drive, probably unsafely. But we did stop halfway through to feed her and change her. And I just remember going, man, life has taken such a turn. It's so different. What I thought was empty, God was now bringing fullness into the story. And I love that you know, in this moment, you know, the women, you know, they don't name the baby. Obviously, probably Ruth and Boaz named the baby. Uh, but the women here, you know, they affirm it. And they say, you know, his name is Obed. A son has been born in Naomi, and they named him Obed. We know that in the, in the Hebrew, names have meaning. Names have had meaning in this story so far, right? Do you know what Obed means? It means servant of God. You see, all of a sudden, again, you start looking at the story, and you're like, wow, this is an incredible blessing to Naomi. But when you see through the story, you see how God is going to bring redemption, not just to Naomi, but he's going to bring redemption to the entire humanity with this Jesus, the Savior, the servant of God. So as we come back to this just to kind of like summarize, you know, the story for us, you know, so here's where the story kind of starts. Is up here, you know, there's this food and fertility issue, uh, and so what happens is that they then go to Moab, right? And as the story goes, you know, they're going to kind of, they're going to come here, and they're going to come down, and eventually the story will end. But as it goes, it's kind of like this, it starts with this big kind of generic You know, opening narrative, right? It starts with the fact that they go to Moab. We know nothing about where they're at in Moab. We just know that they're in this large country of Moab, and that's their sojourn. But then there's this return, right? Because they find out that food is now available. In Israel, back in Israel. And so there's this at least partial fulfillment uh, um, of of that food narrative. And so they head back uh, to, or they return back to Bethlehem. Once they get there, though, what happens is is that Ruth, right, in order to gain food, she goes to the field, which happens to belong to Boaz. Um, And again, partial fulfillment of more food entering into the story. Uh, What happens next is that he invites her to a table, and she eats. In fact, she eats so much that she is full. And in fact, she's so full that she has leftovers to take home to Naomi. You're catching a pattern here. Okay. Now, the food issue is being resolved. Fertility is not being resolved yet. And so what happens is, is that they devise a somewhat sketchy plan, but she goes to the threshing floor, and she, in her purity and innocence, basically shows Boaz that she has need for redemption. She has need for marriage. So what does he do? He then goes to the city gate, right? You see how the locations are getting more and more specific, right? Big, smaller, 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 smaller. And all of a sudden, he, after he buys the land, he buys the right to marry Ruth. And then in one sentence, we go from wedding to baby. And this is fulfillment of the story. And what's interesting in this is that, you know, like for us, like our stories might be different, but you just think about how much waiting there is in these stories. Like we don't know like how and when God is working to fulfill those types of things, but God is working, right? And for us, though, what's hard is not just the waiting. It's not just the waiting that's hard for us. What's also hard is that when we get on this, it's going to feel, sometimes it can feel like a slide, And it's like you start to slide, and sometimes it's faster, sometimes it's slower, but you feel out of control. It's like you're falling in this direction, and you wonder, where in the world is this going to end up, and how am I going to land, right? Here's the beauty of the story, because this is really the small story, isn't it? This is from our perspective. The big story is that God is constantly undergirding this story in love, and he is rising to the occasion, and he meets her, and in this story, these God moments, he's showing up, and he is providing for her, and this is the way that God works, and we don't always see it, we don't always feel it, but over time, all of a sudden, things can become really clear, can't they? This is why, this is where we're at, and this is what's so great about this, is that when you look at this, what does this actually remind you of? it's a greater than symbol. So here's what I want to tell you. Here's what I want you to, you know, kind of this big idea that maybe you can be wrestling with is this, is that God's redemption is actually greater than your struggle. God's redemption, there should be a slide, hopefully, God's redemption is greater than your struggle. And so for each of us, we wonder, like, how and when, God, are you actually going to to do this. And so for each and every one of us, there is a future component. So not just is there fulfillment, and not just does God want fullness, but there's a future component. Like we don't know how God is going to continue to work out his story. And how this story ends is is that they name him Obed, but guess what? Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of who? David. Who's David? David is the king that every other king for the rest of history will be compared to. On a personal note, he is the man who God describes being after his own heart. He's also the king who would expand the kingdom and bring military peace to his people. That's David. Here's the trick, though. Here's the trick. Remember that we said that, that Ruth was written way back at the very beginning of, of the this, of this series. We said that Ruth falls chronologically, Joshua judges Ruth, okay? That's where it falls in the historical timeline. It was written during the exile, so years and years and years later, after, after Assyria and Babylon come in and take all of the people out. So if that's the case, if that's when Ruth is written, why would you write this story at that point and end it with King David, who is a king from long ago? Why? Why would you write it? Let me give you a hint. In verse 14, we go back to this, what we skipped over a little bit earlier. It's the same women, it says, "'Then the women said to Naomi, "'Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day "'without a restorer of life.'" Oops, excuse me, I just skipped. "'The women who has not left you this day "'without a number?' and may his name "'be renowned in Israel.'" And you're like, what does this baby have to do with this, this name being renowned? Like, what is he going to accomplish? You see, it's not just the name that's known in Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is where they were at, this tiny little town. It says, may the baby's name be known in the entire kingdom. And so what we find here is not only the small story, big story, and that God's redemption is greater than our struggle. We also find that this is how the story points us. It becomes an arrow and it points us right to Jesus, and that 's where we 'll be next week, as we look at Jesus the king so here 's the deal, like as we end, like you know here we 've got this family line that 's coming to an extinction. At the same time, that's the small story. At the same time, there's this big story that the whole kingdom has need for a king. And at the center of both the small story and the big story is God. And that's how he's weaving these stories together, pointing them ultimately towards Jesus. Now, I don't know what your story is and how God will bring redemption to your story wherever you're at. I don't know that outside of heaven. I do know that. But right now, I don't know that. I don't know the timing of that. Here's what I do know as I know that Jesus can be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. That not only is Jesus a fulfillment in your life, he also wants to bring you fullness. And it's when we think about Ephesians, this prayer, right, where we look at God and it says that he is able to do far more than we can ever ask or imagine. I want to end with with this, um, and it's back all the way back in, in chapter 1, verse 16, because this is where the story started, right? The story could have turned out very differently, except here's how it started, is that Ruth in this, this tension between do I leave or do I stay with Naomi, Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. You see, this is not just a story of regeneration. It's not just a story of conversion. This is also a statement of commitment. And so I want to ask you in your life, in your walk with Jesus at the end of this, in the midst of wherever you're at in your story, is this the role that God plays? Is God your God in the midst of everything in your life, day in and day out, is he at the center of your story? Because when he is in the midst of that, what we'll find is that God's redemption is greater than your struggle. I want to invite um, Sarah. Many um, of you guys know Sarah. She's going to come up and just share a little bit about her story uh, and what's been going on with her uh, in this last year. Sarah is our um, director of children's ministry. And uh, to say the least, you know, this last year has been pretty chaotic and, and hard and difficult for her. But um, we started the series and found that, gosh, there's there was a lot that God was doing in this story and a lot that God was doing in your story that kind of aligned. And so, um, Sarah, you, she's been gracious enough to say, hey, I'd, I'd love to share. So could you just share with us a little bit about this last year? This is this
1: on? There, you there, there we go. Uh, after five years of dating, my husband and I got married last September. We actually met 20 years prior in the NDSU marching band. We were kind of an opposites attract couple but we loved it. We really appreciated the differences that we each brought to the marriage and to, our li- to each other's lives. And we also had a lot of fun just expanding our own interests as we spent more time together in each other's circles and interest areas. Uh, Christopher had a fantastic sense of humor. He could break any tension, usually to his own detriment, uh, but he had a great sense of humor about life and about himself and we just, we laughed a ton. He was also a really incredible musician. I loved hearing him sing, he had a great voice. Ironically though, he never sang to me until our wedding. He surprised me on our wedding and sang our entire first dance song to me while we were dancing, which was really special. So that's our relationship in a nutshell. Uh, November 16th kind of just started off like any other day. I got up, went for a run, came home. We had coffee on the couch. And then he headed out for a morning gig uh, that he had and texted me later in the day and said he wasn't going to make it home because work got busy. Okay, we'll see you tonight after church. About 6.15, we had parents and kids showing up for activities, and I got a phone call that Christopher was missing, which is very unusual After a quick frantic search at some likely locations of where he might be, he was found slumped over in his car. And that night at the hospital, I learned that my husband had had a massive stroke and there was no chance of survival. So I was looking at, in less than a year, I was going from girlfriend to fiance to wife and now widow. That's my year. It's, a lot. <laughs>
0: it's so much, Yeah, so much, and it's just every turn there's there's opportunity for more hurt and deeper grief and and all that stuff. And, and you you know you're so courageous in sharing this story, but I have also seen a lot of courage and confidence from you in in the midst of this. Like what God has been doing in your heart has been pretty significant. So uh, even just being the willingness to to share from up here. Um, so as you think about Ruth, you know what are some of the connections you see between you know, Ruth's story and your story?
1: So in Ruth's story, we see a lot of decisions and coincidences that all kind of had to line up. And had something else happened, a different decision been made, we don't know how that may have changed the story. And I look at, I can see, actually my honeymoon is a great example of some coincidences that lined up, pointing to something I think probably much bigger. So my sister and I went on our honeymoon that Christopher and I had planned, and on our way back to San Antonio, we spent the night in Austin, and the next morning I coincidentally remembered that a friend of mine had mentioned we go check out this recreational area kind of in the middle of nowhere. Okay, we decided to wing it for the day. So we go hiking, and we coincidentally meet this couple who is also there hiking, and they say, hey, you should go 10 more miles down the road out of your way to this little town of Wimberley. Why not? We go to Wimberley. And coincidentally, we wander into one specific store, and I see some art in the back of the store, and I go back, and I'm looking at it, and then I notice that this artist has actually written a book on grief. So... I buy the book and I read half of it on my flight home and then I look up her ministry Facebook page and start following it. Coincidentally, two days later, I see a post that she makes about dropping off some new artwork in the store in Wimberley. And I I don't normally comment on public pages. It's just not my thing. But I coincidentally felt compelled (laughs) to encourage her and say, hey, I really appreciated your grief book. It It was very meaningful to me. And she replies, and she says, oh, where are you from? And I respond, and that's that's sort of it, right? Well, two weeks later, I wake up to a message on my phone from some random person, and uh, she says that she coincidentally had seen my Facebook post that I was in Fargo, and this was her art mentor in Texas. And she, this gal who messaged me, lives in Bismarck. Well, when she looked me up, she saw that we, I'm actually friends with a couple of her pastors. Interesting. So she says, oh, you know, Sarah's coming up from Texas. I'd love to get you two together. And I'm like, okay, you know, maybe, we'll see. And She says, well, tell me your story. And so I explain the story, and I'm, I say the unique thing about us is that we were only married for 80 days before he died. And no response. A couple hours go by, and she replies, and she says, I'm sorry, I just had to pull myself together. Uh, She says, you know, on November 20th, my pastor coincidentally asked his congregation to be praying for his friend who had just lost her husband of 80 days. Didn't give a name, didn't give any context. So this gal had coincidentally been thinking of me almost every day between November 20th and January 22nd and praying for me. So many coincidences, right? It's 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 pretty wild, actually. So now we've gone from Fargo to Texas, and now we're back up to Bismarck.
0: Yeah, and you've, you've uh, obviously, I think, you've been emphasizing that word coincidences. So, um, what, what have you been learning now as a result of even just the story of Ruth in, in your life?
1: That they're not coincidences. <laughs> Last week you spoke on Kavanaugh moments, and if you missed it, these Kavanaugh moments is this idea of we have an active participation on God's storyline in our faithfulness. And when the Holy Spirit intercedes, that cross point is a Kavanaugh moment. And these are Kavanaugh moments in Ruth's story. I have had many Kavanaugh moments in this story, specifically in the hospital. Uh, In the four days between Christopher's stroke and his death, I had countless conversations with nurses, doctors, transplant organization, staff, and friends and family, and they would ask me a very simple routine question of how are you doing? And it usually comes back with a simple routine answer. But I, for whatever reason, just didn't want to give a simple routine answer. So I said i don't grieve without hope this is awful this is gut-wrenching i hate everything that is happening to me right now but i don't grieve without hope because my husband and i both believe that jesus is going to bring us to heaven one day and we are going to be reunited and it's going to be wonderful so in the midst of this i have hope and so i kept having these conversations and looking back i realized that is me being faithful in my grief and yet, the Holy Spirit opening doors. And when those open doors happen, that's a Kavanaugh moment when I barreled right through it. Well, what's kind of cool, too, is that later on, a couple of my friends were nurses that week in the ICU. And they each independently told me that their coworkers were going to them and saying, How is his wife so strong? And they're, they, them knowing me and my faith, they're like, it's all God, that's the Holy Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit in her. Those are also those Kavanaugh moments where them and their faith are being faithful to God's story, and then the Holy Spirit opens up a door with their co-workers, so they got to hear the gospel again.
0: That's so neat, you know, you've experienced loss uh, in, in a way that many of us here have not, some of us have, but uh, many of us have not, and so you're really speaking from a real deep experience, but uh, if you were just to share an encouragement with us, you know, what would you leave us with? You know, what's a thought or a line that you would you encourage us with?
1: Uh, well, <laughs> it's a lot of points. Ruth's story is a little story. Mine is a little story. You have a story, and yet we're all part of a big story, and we're all pointing, hopefully, to Jesus. <laughs> we should be. And it is in our faithfulness, in our daily walks, that these coincidences and these moments can be the springboard for something extraordinary for the gospel's sake if we remain faithful to christ and just remember who we belong to
0: Mm. gosh thanks sarah thanks for being vulnerable and authentic and sharing with us would you guys join me in prayer as we wrap up father this morning as we finish we're just reminded of your steadfast love, your, your hesed love, your unending and unswavering, um, unwavering mercy. And I think about Sarah's story, I think about Ruth's story. Uh, Lord, I pray that this morning in the midst of whatever chaos and emptiness that we may feel, uh, that you would show up and that you would remind us that you are actively redeeming our story, uh, not just for heaven, but also for here. Uh, and Lord, I, so I pray that you would bring fullness to our lives, bring fullness to our stories, redeem our stories, but would you also use us to platform the gospel to bring redemption to other people's stories as well. Lord, we love you. and your name we pray. Amen.